The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. shepherds out on the hills they were watching their sheep taking care of their lambs when suddenly the skies were rent open the angels of God began to sing glory to God in the highest and for many of us a favorite story began to emerge of a of a baby born in Bethlehem This was not just a baby. 
The scriptures tell us that the fullness of God dwelt in that baby. In John 3.16, we find, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That word, only begotten Son, in the Greek, literally means the one-of-a-kind Son. One-of-a-kind because this Son was fully God and fully man. For an atonement to me to be made for the human race, for peace to be made between a sinner and a holy God, there had to be an atonement. Now, that atonement, everything hangs on what we think of what we believe about that atonement. The atonement required a fully God man, a union. God could not die, but a human man could die. So God did not die on the cross. A man died on the cross, but it was a God man. It was a man who knew no sin. And when he died on Calvary, he, he had no sin. He bore our sin, but he did not become a sinner. How could God become a sinner? If God became a sinner, who would pay the price for the God-man? There was no other atonement available. The God-man Jesus, that baby from Bethlehem, had lived a perfect life utterly utterly perfect without sin he was the second Adam and he demonstrated before the universe that a man could live without sin but not Adam's children they were bound to the devil and it would take an atonement to separate them and make them holy And so we have the blood of bulls and goats being offered through the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. The blood of bulls and goats could not remove the sin. It could only cover it. And so men and women were declared righteous because they brought the blood offering. But at the cross of Jesus Christ, where the God-man died, at that place, provision was made to forgive all sin from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. Provision was made. Now, what we believe happened at the cross is the single most crucial thing you can believe about God. Your doctrine will hang your life will hang on what you believe happened at the cross. If you believe that God was punished by God at the cross and that God could separate himself into two different beings, then you don't believe in one God. Therefore, you believe in heresy. 
the teaching of the gospel, the teaching of scripture, is that we serve one God who manifests himself as three persons. But every one of those persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, are one God. They cannot be divided. And so when Jesus went to that cross and offered himself as a priestly offering, he was both the high priest and he was the sacrifice. And his blood was shed. Jesus was not saved. He was not an atonement because of the punishment that was brought to bear upon him. That was simply the devil trying to turn Jesus back from making that ultimate sacrifice. The devil taking every bit of vengeance he could upon God. But it was not salvation for us. Jesus offered himself as a high priest offering a sacrifice, a priestly sacrifice. But as I said, everything is going to hang on what you believe about that atonement. So let me ask you some very logical questions that will expose what you do believe about the atonement. May I say your salvation hangs on what you believe about the atonement because your behavior will always flow out of what you believe as a person. Many will believe a lie, and because of that lie, they will be lost, because their actions will follow their beliefs. So, what you believe about the atonement, it's the greatest theological question to confront the human condition. Simple question. Does God love all of Adam's race or only a select few? What must I do to be saved? Or do I have to do anything to be saved? Can God save me from my sin and from my carnal nature now, not sometime in the future, but right now, can God save me from my sin? Or is the full salvation only going to be experienced after I die? Is death my Savior that removes my sin? Or is Jesus my priestly sacrifice? If I continue to sin, can I still go to heaven? Or do I have to obey God in every way? Do I have to leave my sin now in order to enter into the kingdom above? Now, what you believe about the atonement will generate your belief system, which in turn shapes your character, your thoughts, your emotions, and your actions. You may be unconscious of what you have believed. You may have been taught something and then you simply built your life out on what you were taught, believing that what they told you was true. But we are headed to the judgment. 
and we are going to have to give an account concerning the very things, the character, the thought life, the actions we've taken. But if you believe that atonement was simply God punishing God, this will generate a certain set of thoughts and emotions considering salvation and security. If you believe that Jesus was obedient for me and he was punished for me, therefore God requires nothing of me, and that I'm perfectly secure even while sinning, believing that all of my past, present, and future sins were forgiven at the cross, I'm in trouble. Obviously, the wrong belief about what happened at the cross at the cross gives the wrong answers to these destiny determining questions and so the soul goes out to meet god in a state of deception knowingly in sin but fancying that they are not under wrath and condemnation they stake their claim of eternal life on the blasphemous demonically inspired notion that jesus was punished by god in the atonement in theological language it's called penal atonement God punishing God cannot prepare a man to meet God at the judgment and tragically this doctrine of atonement is entertained almost universally among Catholics and Protestants like many Baptists many Presbyterians and many others It's an unbiblical, distorted view of the Calvary event, which has done more to undermine and destroy the salvation message than any other single doctrine in the history of the Christian church. By it, Satan has positioned a Trojan horse in the center of the religious community, robbing the church of its effectiveness, replacing New Testament salvation vocabulary, which communicates transformation, restoration from the fall, deliverance from all sin in the here and now, with a sub-Christian vocabulary, which communicates only a legal salvation, as if righteousness no deliverance in this life thus it strips the gospel of its saving essence and its transforming power now the importance of what you believe about the atonement cannot be overstated nor can the far-reaching consequences of one's view of the cross from a revelation of the astounding love of god for all men to the communication of the divine life to the soul of man resulting in a new creation now the atonement is the basis of all that really matters in this life and in the life to come anyone who calls Jesus Christ Lord and you don't understand what happened at Calvary for yourself. You're in trouble because you're living with a hand-me-down religion where others are doing your thinking for you on the most important and vital issue in all of Scripture. 
the central event in history is the cross of Jesus Christ. What one believes about the atonement will determine whether you are saved or lost for eternity. Now, just a few possible positions that you might have heard or might have even believed or might believe today. Your belief about the atonement will determine whether you believe that the atonement at the cross was only for a few select people or was it for all of Adam's race? It will determine whether you believe that salvation is unconditional or conditional. It will also shape your view of the final judgment. Did God so love the world or the world of just the elect so that he gave only his precious one-of-a-kind son just for the elect? Precisely at issue here is the test of the Christian concept of God. Does God love all men? Did he make provision for all men to be saved in the death of his son? Or does God love only a few, the Calvinistic elect, the Lutheran elect? And has he left everyone else to go to hell with no provision for them to be saved? in the death of his son damned from eternity past not for anything foreseen in them strictly arbitrarily for the praise of his glorious justice John Calvin said all are not created on equal terms but some are preordained to eternal life others to eternal damnation and accordingly as each has been created for one or the other of these ends we say that he has been predestined to life or to death a modern scholar dr james r white says god's love for the world comes to expression in the sending of his unique son into the world and in the provision of eternal life for a specific and limited group the new geneva bible study says christ did not intend to die in this efficacious sense for everyone the proof of that is that not all are saved But John 3.16 says, God so loved the world so that he gave his only one-of-a-kind son. It was out of this profound love for man that God acted, setting forth his son as a sacrifice of atonement by means of his blood. And I'm going to give you a number of scripture passages. I urge you, jot them down and go back and read them carefully. Look at Romans 3, verse 25. Or look at 1 John 4, 8 to 10. Let me read it for you. God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us because God sent his only one-of-a-kind son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he himself loved us and sent his son an atoning sacrifice concerning our sins 
Or if you look at Titus, third chapter, verse 4. But when the kindness and love for mankind appeared from God our Savior, and that love for mankind comes in English philanthropic philanthropic John Law wrote in his old old book God is love the love of Christ is laying down his life for us it's a manifestation under the conditions of time and a sense of the love of God eternal and invisible in human history love has its one absolute embodiment in the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In this is love, the whole and sole equivalent in act of what God is in essence. God, in his divine nature, I want you to hear this. God, in his divine nature, has a feeling of loving kindness toward all of mankind. It is the nature of God. Dr. Adam Clark says, it is to be regretted that this attribute, attribute, attribute of philanthropy of the divine nature, as it stands in relation to man, should have been entirely lost in the translation It is a character which God gives here to himself while human nature exists. This must be a character of the divine nature. God loves man. He is delighted in the idea when formed in his own image, in his own infinite mind. He formed man according to that idea and rejoiced in the work of his hands. While when man fell, the same love induced him to devise his redemption and God the Savior flows from this God of love this love is active it shows itself it appeared it's shown out in the incarnation of Jesus Christ at the at the baby in Bethlehem we see God pouring out all of heaven for us we see this infant child in all of the glory of God encased in human flesh in order to give his life for the world. This amazing love cannot be set in limits. It cannot be consigned to a few. It cannot yield to the constraints of Calvinistic theology. For this love, an attribute of divinity, reaches out to all of Adam's fallen race. If you look at First John, I'm sorry, John 1, verse 29, it says, Behold the Lamb of God, the one taking away the sins of the world, not of the elect. First John 2, 2, And he himself is atonement concerning the sins of us, but not concerning 
our sins only, but also concerning the world as a whole. First John five nineteen. The entire world lies in the evil one. Christ gave his life as atonement for sins, both ours and those of the whole world. First John two two. John's usage of whole cannot be evaded. In the same sweeping context, he points out the whole world lies in the wicked one, 1 John 5.19. Christ died for the world as a whole, the entire world that lies in the evil one. According to the atonement, it is coextensive with the fall. John 12.32 says, And I, if I may be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men with regard to myself. Christ shed his blood to attract or to draw all conceivable men of a fallen race to come to him. John 16.8, And that one having come, he will convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. The purpose of this conviction is to awaken the sinner to his true condition. For the sorrow that accords with God accomplishes repentance unto salvation. 2 Corinthians 7.10 The Holy Spirit deals with all men concerning sin, righteousness, and coming judgment to bring the sinner to Christ that he may be delivered from sin. Conviction is not to expose sin and then drop the sinner into the abyss of hopelessness as in the Calvinistic general call that cannot save. Conviction that is not intended to save with no further intent to to condemn. No, that's irrational. God demands all men individually everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30 And he can do this in perfect sincerity because he has made provision for the salvation of all men in the death of his Son. This belief that God punished God at the cross and paid for all past, present, and future sins it is a lie. It is a lie. But let me tell you what it causes to happen in a person's life. It causes that person to say, it is impossible for any man to walk without known sin in his life. I hear this all the time. The Bible Answer Man was asked the question on the radio, do you believe it's possible for a man to stop all conscious sin? And his answer was absolutely no. We are sinners and we will always be sinners until we die. And then we'll be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. He was lying to us. That's not the Bible's answer. Let me read one last scripture and then I want to go back to part of Pilgrim's Progress as he finishes what we started yesterday with this castle of despair. This is found in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, 
I'll begin with verse 26. Now, willingly continuing to sin after we received clear knowledge of the truth, a sacrifice no longer remains concerning sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. If you have been taught a doctrine that has removed the knowledge of the truth, you will believe that you are saved and the sacrifice of Jesus has covered you. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, no. If you call yourself a Christian and you claim that Jesus Christ paid the price on Calvary for all past, present, and future sins and that you can continue to walk in your sin that it's impossible for you to turn aside. The writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, at the judgment there will be no sacrifice for you and you will be lost. He continues, you will have a certain fearful expectation of judgment, even the fury of fire being on the point to consume the adversaries. Anyone having rejected the law of Moses dies without mercy upon the word of two or three witnesses. But how much worse punishment do you think he will he will be considered worthy of? The one having trampled the Son of God underfoot, in fact, having regarded the blood of the covenant by which he was made holy, a common thing even to have insulted the Spirit of grace. I speak with many people who call themselves Christians who do not believe it is possible today to be made holy. They are denying the power of the blood of Jesus. They are assigning to the blood of Jesus only the power that we see in the blood of bulls and goats. A person who believes that they cannot quit sinning in this life is simply making a cheap excuse based on their belief about what happened at the atonement. At the atonement, the provision was made to wipe away your sins. And then you are called to repent. Dr. Sproul and others believe that you are saved. And then after you are saved, you are to repent. He has reversed the order of salvation, according to John Calvin. Utter wickedness. The scriptures say a man must repent and then believe on Jesus Christ or adhere to Jesus Christ to be born again, to be crucified to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. But today in the modern church, you can be saved with just a little sinner's prayer as you laugh your way down the aisle. And then the preacher says, okay, now you're saved. No, you're not saved. You've just been vaccinated against the gospel of Jesus. You're not saved at all. Let's go to chapter 11 in Pilgrim's Progress. They continued, that is, Hope and Christian, as they have escaped from the castle of despair by the promise. They continued on their path until they came to the delectable mountains which belong to the Lord. 
Once they arrived, they climbed the mountain to see the gardens and orchards and vineyards and fountains. Do you understand? He's saying that in this present life, we can enter into Cana land. That life in Christ is not always a desert. It's not always the valley of the shadow of death. We have the victory and we're brought into the Cana land as an expectation of what it will be when we cross the Jordan into the celestial city. Now at the top of these mountains, shepherds were feeding their flocks and they stood by the side of the highway. The pilgrims went to them and leaning on their staves as it's common with weary pilgrims. They ask, Whose delectable mountains are these? And whose sheep are these that are pasturing on the mountain? A shepherd answered, These mountains are Emmanuel's land, and they are within sight of the holy city. The sheep are also his, and he laid down his life for them. Bunyan believed that this was possible on this side, this side of glory. In other words, Bunyan believed that it was possible to leave your sin, even though he was a Reformed Baptist. He would allow for no known sin in a man or woman's life. He knew that would bring the judgment of God. Christian asked, Is this the way to the celestial city? The shepherd replied, You are going in the right direction. How far is it to get there? Christian inquired. One of the shepherds said, Too far for anyone except those who shall arrive there. I love that answer. Most people take the byways. The byways that take us to the valley of despair. Money, job, family, entertainment, responsibilities, self-love, deception. Anything to make an excuse so that I don't have to be crucified with Christ. How far is it to heaven today, my brother, my sister? It's too far except those who will arrive there. Christian asks, is the way safe or dangerous? And the answer comes back, safe for those for whom the way is made to be safe, but the transgressors will fall off along the way. In other words, if there is no sin in your life, you cannot make it to the celestial city. This is John Bunyan saying this, not me. In his allegory, published in 1678, this is the old faith. This is the true faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is the way safe or dangerous to heaven? It's only dangerous for those transgressors who walk in known sin and rebellion against God, who've made excuses, who believe that God's love is unconditional. No, his provision is unconditional. But it must be taken advantage of it must be accessed the blood of jesus must come and wash you and cleanse you and make you whole or john bunyan says you're going to fall off on the way you'll never get to the celestial city 
Christian asks, Is there in this place any relief for pilgrims who are weary and faint in the way? The shepherd explained, The Lord of these mountains has given us a charge not to be forgetful to entertain strangers. Therefore, the benefits of the place are here for you. I also saw in my dream that when the shepherds perceived that Christian and hopeful were pilgrims, they started asking them questions such as, Where had they come from? And by what means had they entered the way and found strength to persevere? For few, they said, for few, they said, who begin the journey make it this far. How far are you on the journey toward heaven? It will take your best thought. It will take all of the love of your heart for Jesus. You cannot be divided in your love for Jesus. You cannot have anything between your heart and Jesus' heart. No known sin or you will not make it to the celestial city. I cannot be more clear to you. This is what John Bunyan taught. This is what I teach. When the shepherds heard Christians and Hopeful's answers, they were pleased and looked lovingly upon them, warmly welcomed them to the delectable mountains. The shepherds whose names were knowledge, experience, watchful and sincere took them by the hand and led them to their tents where a meal had been prepared for them they asked pilgrims to stay there a while to get acquainted and to refresh themselves with all the good things of the delectable mountains may i tell you the most important event of the week is when the church gathers to worship Jesus. If you are not a part of church, you are in serious danger. Church is not an institution. It's not even an organization. Oh, the church has institutions and it has organization, but that's not the church. The church is the ecclesia in the Greek, the called out ones, the called out ones from sin, the called out ones from darkness. When these holy ones gather at the church, this is the single most important event of the week. And Jesus' presence is there. He said, where two or three gather in my name, there I am. Where two or three gather in my name, who are the called out ones from their sin. If you have not responded, if you are not called out from your sin, you are not a part of the ecclesia. You may be a part of a human church, an institution, an organization, a social club. But you're not a part of the church. The church is comprised only of those men and women who have been called out of their sin and now walk clean before God, and then coming to that church are the seekers, the hungry ones, the ones who need to be taught about what happened at the atonement and what happened when Jesus was born on that wonderful day in Bethlehem.
The Christian faith requires a certain amount of intellectual understanding. The Christian faith requires the teaching of Scripture. But we have many false prophets and many liars who have gone out teaching false gospels. And the fruit of the church is evident today in total compromise and darkness, filled with wicked entertainment, filled with the pleasures of the flesh, pastors compromising left and right, telling the jokes, having a Super Bowl party. I went to one church. I wanted to go and worship on a Sunday evening, and we didn't have a Sunday service. So I went to a local mega church here in Woodbridge. When I walked in, I was greeted at the door, and they said to me, Welcome to the Super Bowl party tonight. I said, What? I came to worship Jesus. Well, we're not doing that tonight. We have a Super Bowl party instead. This is our evangelistic outreach. An evangelistic outreach devoid of Jesus Christ? Really? Really? I was astonished. I said, no, thank you. And I turned and walked out, and they were very offended. They followed after me. Oh, no, please come. You'll enjoy our Super Bowl party. I said, no, I will not enjoy your Super Bowl party. I enjoy the presence of Jesus Christ and him alone. I was deeply offended. I've never gone back to that church, and I never will. It's filled with wickedness, with worldliness, with compromise. I saw in my dream that in the morning the shepherds called Christian and hopeful to them and asked them to walk with them upon the mountains. So they went with them and walked a while. So the shepherds said to one another, Shall we show these pilgrims some wonders? So after they had agreed to do so, they then took the, them first to the top of a hill called Air. It was very steep on the far side. And they asked them to look down to the bottom. And so Christian and Hopeful looked down and saw at the bottom several men dashed to pieces by a fall. And Christian said, What does this mean? And the shepherds answered, Haven't you heard of those who fell into air listening to Hymenius, who denied the faith by refusing to believe in the resurrection of the Lord? And when they answered that they had, the shepherds continued, Those whom you see dashed to pieces at the bottom of this mountain are they that have continued to this day, unburied, as you see, for an example to others to take heed, not to clamor too high or too near the brink of this mountain air. And when I saw that the shepherds took them to the top of another mountain named Caution, to stop a minute false pastors will not call you to repent they will not confront you nor will they teach you all of scripture they will tell you all is well they will tell you to go on as nothing is wrong they will comfort you in the midst of your sin and they will justify sin they will tell you that you are a victim 
and that you are not responsible for your sin. They will tell you to be the best you can be and go for what you want, money, power, pleasure. They will give you all manner of strategies. They will teach you about positive thinking. Name it and claim it. They will tell you to be balanced and not to become fanatics. Now they came to caution. And when they did, they saw what they thought were several men walking up and down among the tombs there. They perceived that the men were blind because they stumbled upon the tombs and because they could not get out from among them. Christian said, what does this mean? Well, the shepherd said, do you see a little below these mountains a stile that leads into a meadow on the left-hand side? When they spotted it, the shepherd said, from that stile there is a path that leads directly to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair. And these, said the shepherds, pointing to those who were stumbling among the tombs, were once on pilgrimage just as you are. But when they came to the same stile where the true way was rough, they chose to go out of it into that meadow. Once in the meadow, they were taken by giant despair and cast into Doubting Castle. And after they'd been kept in the dungeon for a while, he at last put out their eyes and led them among the tombs where he left them to wander to this very day. The saying of the wise man is fulfilled. He that wanders out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. Then Christian and Hopeful looked at one another with tears streaming down their face. But they said nothing to the shepherds. I have to stop a moment and just ask you a question that is quite offensive. Are you a part of the congregation of the dead? No, really. Are you a part of the congregation of the dead? If you believe that God died for a select few and that you've been blessed to be one of that select few and that you're free to walk in your sin because all of your past, present, and sins have been already wiped out and there's nothing that you can do to be lost, if you believe as one national teacher teaches that you can even take the mark of the beast and you will be forgiven that because you're saved. Then you belong to the congregation of the dead. And if you don't take radical action and allow the Holy Spirit to bring the truth of the atonement to your heart that in the atonement all provision was made for the forgiveness of your sins and the power to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus so that the fruit of the Spirit is born abundantly in life, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness. If these the fruit of the Spirit are not in your life, and you continue to walk in rebellion, you are part of the congregation of the dead. 
and it requires a very serious reconsideration of what happened at the atonement and why Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Do you understand? Jesus was not born in Bethlehem simply to be a sentimental, beautiful peace offering. Jesus was born in Bethlehem to bring division Division between a man and his wife. Division between a man and his children. Division between a man and the world. We are to be the called out ones. Now, I'm not saying in any manner to castigate your family. I'm saying you must be called out of worldliness and you must stop participating in the things of darkness. One woman who listens to this broadcast shared with me that her extended family had made a decision to go to a wicked place for Christmas Eve. She always spends Christmas Eve with her family, and of course they expect her to be there. And she has had to say, I'm sorry, I can't go to that place. It's a place of darkness. They don't understand. They think she's being a fanatic. She is being a follower of Jesus Christ. She does not belong to the congregation of death. And I saw in my dream that the shepherds took them to another place in the bottom of the ravine where there was a door in the side of the hill. The shepherds opened the door and asked them to look in. They looked in and saw what was very dark and smoky. They also thought they heard a rumbling noise like that of fire and the cries of someone being tormented, and they smelled the scent of brimstone. And Christian asked, What does this mean? And the shepherds told them, This is a byway to hell, a way that hypocrites enter by doing such things as selling their birthright like Esau, or selling their master like Judas, or blaspheming the gospel or lying and dissembling, like Ananias and Sapphira and his wife. Then said Hopeful to the shepherds, I perceive that all these people you have mentioned had the appearance of being pilgrims, just as we do, did they not? Yes, and for a long time, too, the shepherd replied. How long did they appear to go on their pilgrimage before they were miserably cast away? Some came as far as these mountains, some even further. And some were lost before they ever got here. And the pilgrims said to one another, We need to cry to the strong one for strength. Yes, a shepherd agreed, You will need to use that strength when you get it. And the shepherds continued their journey. That's reading from Pilgrim's Progress, edited by C.J. Levick. John Bunyan, 1678. What is your understanding of the atonement? Do you understand that the blood of Jesus does not just leave you as you are? It regenerates you now. It transforms you now. It metamorphoses you now. It makes you into a new creature and you leave the old things 
of this fleshly world. You no longer lie. You no longer fornicate. You no longer cheat. You no longer walk in bitterness and anger. You don't walk in the way of darkness again. You are set free. Well, that's it today for Pilgrim's Progress. Our producer is telling me we have just a little over a minute remaining. I want to ask you, would you please, as we walk into this month of December, help with the covering of the cost of this broadcast? We don't sell things. We simply do an offertory, inviting you to give as the Holy Spirit prompts you. Would you mail your check or cash or money order that the Holy Spirit prompts you to give in your tithes and offerings to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, that's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I invite you also to come and worship with us at the National Prayer Chapel. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. One word, nationalprayerchapel.com. Thank you for listening today. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you, my brother, my sister, as you consider these serious issues of atonement. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ.